You are now tuned in to the Addicted to Success.com podcast, where geniuses, entrepreneurs, and next level game changers share their juicy little secrets on achieving massive success. This is the advice you wish you heard years ago. Be prepared and take note as we expose the realness and the raw of what it takes to be successful on Addicted to Success.com. Now, before we get into this interview, I have an exclusive opportunity for you that I'd love to bring to your attention. And that is I have just launched a six to 12 month mastermind called the Circle of Influence, where I'll be taking you under my wing to show you how to build a platform online that generates an income for you so you can have more freedom in your life. I'm also going to show you how to become a powerful influencer online so that you can score interviews and so you can get exposure on major publications and platforms. And I'm going to even show you how to build these platforms yourself, such as a website, podcast, a YouTube channel, and a social media following so that you can get your message out there to millions. I'm also going to show you how to network with other incredible leaders online so that you can interview them and so that you can collaborate with them and really show you how to refine your story so you can share it in an unforgettable way to score more interviews, to score book deals, and to gain more speaking opportunities so that you can become a powerhouse leader. Now, if this speaks to you, make sure you head over to IamJoelBrown.com slash apply and get in before I close my doors on this live interactive exclusive opportunity where I'm going to go deep with you and with the community of Circle of Influence Game Changers. Don't miss this. Now, let's get into this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. I'm your host, Joel Brown, and today I am here with one of the incredible new published authors that I've had such an, uh, an incredible opportunity to meet and have a quick conversation with before this, and his name is Sam Conif Ariende. and since starting his entrepreneurial career aged 19, Sam has mentored thousands of talented young entrepreneurs and hustlers around the world. Now, the awesome thing about Sam is that he is a multi-award winning uh, social serial entrepreneur and co-founder of and CEO of Liberty, Don't Panic and Live Magazine. So he's had his hands in business for quite a while now. But not only that, he is a purpose-driven strategy consultant for brands such as Netflix, Roald Dahl, Red Bull, Unilever, and PlayStation. When I saw that name, it brought back some memories of uh, my PlayStation days. <laughs> uh, his new book, Be More Pirate, uh, reveals the radical strategies of golden age pirates and updates them into clear solutions for making your mark on the 21st century. And I've got to say, I saw uh, your promo clip, Sam, of your book and the way that it was all printed and how your book is challenging people to be rebellious and to disrupt systems to get their message out there and to be more authentic in the way that people brand and market themselves. And I, I just can't wait for you to, to jump in and share your wisdom with us. So uh, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. Thank you very, very much. Uh, and I, I welcome the address that you gave to anyone. I would add to it, welcome ladies, gentlemen, and pirates, because uh, <laughs> I started writing the book. I was, you know, is this too random? Am I, have I pushed this metaphor too far? Uh, and then Day after day, workshop after workshop, audience after audience, what I find is people putting their hands up to say, you know what, I'm a pirate, I'm a pirate, I'm a pirate. And I suspect that within your community, I'm speaking to a lot of like-minded pirates and rebels. 
Oh, you know what? I think real entrepreneurs are basically pirates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When we, when yeah. we break it down, right? And, and your book breaks it down so well and I can't wait to get into it. Uh, you know, there are some like names that are, that are put in the book uh, such as Elon Musk, uh, Malala, even blockchain as well, which I know is very disruptive. But what do pirates have to do with these names? Well, you know, I started it as a, I was in the process of transitioning out of a enterprise that I'd run for nearly 20 years. And I knew that I needed something to kind of, to act as my distraction project, right? To keep me busy whilst the new team took over from me. Um, and uh, the one thing I was going to continue doing was the mentoring, the stuff I do with young entrepreneurs around the world. And, you know, I've been using this metaphor for a while of pirates, of anything extraordinary, people willing to take risks and push on the edges. And so it was felt like a good metaphor to start the book with, right? Great. This is the, the, the audience I want to speak to. It's, it's a call to arms. I've, I've spent enough time at the highest levels of business and government to realize that there really is no master plan. You know, no one is coming to save us. You know, the, the, the mess that we see is real. Uh, and I spent years myself waiting to, to meet the smart grown-ups who have got a plan behind the scenes. You know, <laughs> and, and they just ain't there. And at the same time as that despondency, I feel nothing but optimism and positivity when I'm out in the field working with smart young change makers, be that in, in Athens facing tough economic times or be in Baltimore facing tough social times or in Brixton or in Bradford, anywhere you go, you know, the leadership and the energy is coming from the smart young innovators. So Pirates was my, my metaphor, a rallying cry, you know, we're the rebels. But when I fell into the research stage, right, and I'm not academic at all, I fell into the research stage literally and it hit me like a brick. 300 years ago exactly, 1718, mid-golden age of pirates, the millennials of the 18th century, right, they were the average age was 27, were rejecting the uh, broken rules of an unfair society, a self-interested establishment, they'd been locked out of their own future, and so they rewrote a new social contract. They were truly entrepreneurs. They set up these new types of organization, they threatened the world with their new practices, and they were so successful, they became working class heroes the world over. We should, if history had been told truthfully, regard them somewhere between the civil rights movement and maybe the suffragettes. But they were written out of history because they threatened the establishment so much. So at a time when some positive rebellion, some good trouble is required, that I'm not just speaking as a metaphor to your community and our community, it's become a, it's become a manifesto. Mm, I like this. I really like this. I know before uh, we jumped on this interview, you and I were having a conversation about what it's like to bring people up at your workshops and events. Yeah. To get them into a place where they realize it's like this perception shift where they realize they are pirates in a sense. Yeah. You, you share this beautiful analogy. And, and, and I said at the time, I said, oh, it's like uh, basically it's like a disruptive confidence that people start to have where they realize that they yeah. – can challenge the system that it doesn't have to be like everything else or everybody else that there is a way that we can truly authentically express ourselves now yeah. when you work with these brands these ceos these founders these companies what do you feel like is the biggest breakthrough that you've been able to facilitate that happens often where it creates a massive shift within their branding marketing and messaging yep so the, the, the thing to say straight off the bat is I'm coming into this and to anybody, to anybody watching it, seeking any kind of like levels, I'm coming back into this at square one, right? Naked. Um, I've never written a book before. I know nothing about publishing. Uh, or every other bit of experience before me kind of disappears. And once again, I'm 
totally naive, absolute imposter syndrome. Uh, the first couple of interviews I did like this, being introduced as, you know, best-selling author. I'm looking over my shoulder to see where the best-selling author is, right? Completely <laughs> feeling like a chancer in this space. I'm dyslexic, non-academic. Uh, I found it incredibly hard to write a book. And so suddenly here I am being asked to speak my ideas into a room. The company's not there. My team's not there. All the stuff I'm using, the PA, everything is not there anymore, right? Back to square one, naked in the dark, zero. So my starting point for transformation is, is, is the recognition that we all fall back into that space, if we're really honest. Uh, and that's where change has got to come from. Where, where actually is your power coming from if it's not the trappings around you? I'm a 42-year-old man back in a position of startup day one on your own imposter. So the, the invitation to, to, to bring the book into a workshop environment completely surprised me. Like, totally surprised me. I told you earlier, it was Lego was the first business to call me. And now the boy in me still, like, Lego is my number one brand, right? And I was flown out to Denmark to run a workshop. And I'm working out the workshop on the plane because I didn't design a workshop. I barely knew I was, you know, going to write a successful book. Uh, but the material was all there, you know, in my subconscious, in the narrative, in the desire of this book to stimulate change, not just inspiration. And so I pulled together these, these chapters and I ran this four-hour workshop. And the, the biggest difference, and this isn't, this isn't deliberately clear, but the biggest difference that's taken place, I've now run it from Lego to Mercedes to Heineken to big global businesses with, with chief execs and their teams in the room, and the advocation is for mutiny. You know, I'm using the pirate frames of reference for change. Mutiny, when a small group of people create a new set of rules and they step outside the way things are, and we recognize the biggest mistake that we can make is to believe that the way things are is the way things have to be. And there's no more powerful force than a small group with a good idea. And I watch this land in a room and I speak to it with, you know, I am, I've made this up based on my long held experience and my, my true belief that research that's in this book and these as your new role models for creating change pirates. And the biggest effect to, to, to take a long way of answering your question is when you see someone step out of their self-imposed limitations. When the reasons that I'm given that people can't do this is, oh, well, you know, the, the projection of the middle management or, or, or fear, or I've got a mortgage or my kid. When someone just steps up and steps out of what it was that they were allowing to hold them back. And whether that's been, you know, I've seen people, uh, I've seen senior, senior guys change their budgeting overnight. I've seen senior women decide to say, right, as of today, I'm gonna publish my salary online. I'm gonna bring this company's gender pay inequality into the open. I've seen people say, I'm no longer coming in at 9.30. This is ridiculous. I work, I'm starting to assert my own working hours. I've seen young women uh, say, we're never going to attend a meeting that is badly run in a misogynistic way where the blokes talk over the girls and they start a new meeting manifesto and start walking out of them. You know, they can be big, small, seemingly innocuous, massive and strategic, but the one that matters, the only one that matters is when someone rebels against what it is that they let hold themselves back. And I can't tell you, man, it has been such a surprise to watch this you know, unfold from the pages of a book. I've spent 20 odd years building businesses to try and change the world, and lo and behold, the most powerful thing I've ever done is a tiny little 10 pound paperback book. <laughs> You're raising rebels, Sam. You're raising <laughs> rebels, it's amazing. And, and the cool thing is you get to raise rebels at any, there's, there's no limit to the age, right? Like you're saying, men and women in, in senior positions, uh, young, you know, millennials, even in Generation Z that you, you have the opportunity to work with too. And I'm sure more will pour in. And 
I, you know, I think this is really awesome to see that like there's a way now that you can support people that you've never been able to before. And it has this ripple effect, right? Like it, you, you teach them, they teach someone else. It's, yeah. it's crazy how this spreads. And I, I like that what you talked about earlier when we had a conversation before, how you said that like you had a company that reached out to you that said they read your book and you said to me, you're writing this book for like a year straight and then, you know, it goes out there in the world and it's like, you don't know who it's inspiring or who it's impacting. And I think that that in itself, and I'd love for you to share that in a, in a few seconds, but I, I think I love that you shared that with me and we're relaying it is because there are a lot of people that are sitting on their hands right now that aren't writing their books and they have so much wisdom to share and they're not doing it. Little do they know that they could be inspiring so many people. I mean, I, I think it's one of those cliches, isn't it? Everybody's got a book in them. And I mean, I, I can be really honest. I was very scared of doing it. That's one of the reasons I chose to do it. Um, I wrote a proposal like anybody can. It was, a, it was about a dozen pages. It was shit. It was the worst and most boring book on earth. Uh, it was called Purpose First, and it was the argument for the renaissance of uh, kind of meaningful capitalism. And we <laughs> it. We get it. We know it. It was boring. <laughs> Uh, and it was in one of the workshops that I've done with young people, uh, young entrepreneurs. They were like, Sam, where's this, where's this shit coming from? You're trying to sound like your dad. Where's all the pirates? And I wrote that in my notebook, where's the pirates? And I went back and looked at my boring proposal. And I was trying to be a grown-up. You know, I was leaving this business. It was going to be my what next? I was going to write a business book. And I was like, I better do something grown-up. So the first point is be who you are. You know, it, it, books, yes, they have this status. And yes, there's this recognition. There's a reason that we want to do it. But the good book that everyone's going to write, that you're going to write, is going to be the book about you and what you believe. So once I had that down, I did it every single morning, 6.30, every single morning, four hours. And, and, and the truth of writing is rewriting. And every day I'd come and look at what I'd written and who, who wrote that? And at first it was, who wrote that? It's terrible. And then after a few months, I'd be like, who wrote that? It's quite good. You know, but the relentlessness, the pursuit of it, the exercising of it, is that's what, that's what made it get better. And then my, uh, I wrote a book like anyone, any of your community would probably make a product. I, I wrote it in a, an open sense. I workshopped it probably twice a month so that I knew what was resonating. I knew what was responding. I took it to Baltimore, Illinois. I took it to uh, Athens. I took it to South Africa. I took it to communities where I really wanted it to make a difference, right? Not just to my own circle. Um, and that was what made a successful book, right? Uh, that got over all of everything, every single reason why people would say that they can't do it. It's a daily pursuit, you test that material and it's honest from the heart. And then I believe anybody could produce something of, of quality. The biggest surprise is what I said to you earlier. That once you put it out there, you, you lose any control over it. You know, it's, it's on shelves, it's on Amazon, you put your heart and soul into this thing. And then one day you get an email from someone that you have never met, you're never gonna meet, and they tell you the difference that it's made on their life. They've interpreted it. They probably, they probably ignored half of it. <laughs> they were thinking what they were thinking. Is they, and they own it now. It's got nothing to do with you anymore. They own this change. And I, I, and I now receive these on a daily basis. I've got a rebellion folder in my Gmail account that is to honor every single individual sending me a note saying, you know, I've got over 50 where people have sent me their resignation now. I got halfway through your book. And fuck it. You know what? I've resigned or people who've started a campaign or begun a social enterprise or changed a relationship. I haven't got back to them yet. You know, I will in time, but there's too many. And in a way, they're not mine. You know, the book has a life of its own. It touches people in its own way. And that, uh, to get over your arrogance or your ego or, or what its relationship is, it's, it's unlike anything else that I've done before. You know, you can 
do the best presentations, you can polish and rehearse them, you can run work. When you're not there, the impact of your book is still making change. And that's tumbling, really, tumbling. I love this, man. I applaud you because it's not an easy process. I'm actually in the middle of writing my book right now and I, I get it. And uh, to go back on this whole, like you getting messages from people saying that they said, screw it, I'm, I'm yeah. leaving my day job. What I, what I found with my students and my clients is that a lot of them are in self-betrayal. Uh, self-betrayal is saying yes when you really want to say no. It's uh, seeking the approval of others. It's not trusting yourself, right? Yep. And obviously there's a point where it gets so painful where people are like, I need to shift, right? And it's so cool that your book is this catalyst where it brings realizations and revelations to them to go, you know what, something needs to change. How can people identify if they're in self-betrayal and it's time to be a rebel now and to really stand up and step into who they're born to be instead of blending in with yeah. you know, everybody else? So I've been... Um you know, I can only be honest, right? Like I said at the beginning, uh, I'm, I'm the imposter in this whole frame, right? I didn't, deep down, I, I've written this book to change the world. I didn't expect it to happen. So each one of these emails is a surprise. And that's why I've spoken to as many of them as I can to try and understand it. And, and the line that I've come up with is this. It's about professional rule breaking. Professional rule breaking. I'm not suggesting that it's anarchy. You know, we, we've got so much that's good in the world. And, and even those of us involved in betrayal, you know, these self-imposed limitations. I'm sure there's so much good that we're doing. I don't want anyone to give themselves a hard time. But when faced with stupid rules, and we've got many of them, you know, by rules, I don't mean the regulations or the laws. I'm not suggesting someone goes and gets themselves arrested. But the rules, the conventions, the, the, the habits that we follow, those are the things we need to start getting better at breaking. So professional rule breaking, uh, I judge as if you're, if, you're, if you're on the right path, you'll probably be nearly getting fired at least once a year. Yeah. Then you're breaking the rules just about enough. You're not getting fired, so it's skillful rule breaking. It's an art. But not <laughs> so much that you're actually getting fired. Then you're creating anything less, what are you doing? Anything less, are you really shaking things up? Now, if you start this, this journey of, of challenging the rules every day, then really you're just asking why. Why am I doing it like this? Why is it done like that? How could it be done differently? And I think as we begin to question, you realize that much of the constructs around us are the paper walls. When you poke through them, it doesn't need to be punched through, you don't need to tear them down. When you poke through the paper walls around you, you realize that the constructs we're given do not necessarily need to be followed exactly by you. You can determine the new rules of your life. And so it's small things every day, small rules that you break every day. I think a bit like, you know, we should get our seven hours sleep or go for a jog, you know, once a day. And rule breaking to that habit so that when the time comes right because the times are coming when it's the right thing to do to do the wrong thing you'll be ready but the surprise that i've learned about pirates more than anything else is the accountability that's associated with rule breaking because as soon as you're no longer being told what to do but you've set your new rules you're accountable to no one but you i'm doing this this is my new way of doing this because it's good for me i believe it's the right path no one told me you've got no one to bitch about <laughs> you know that's it now it's you and that's what happens to these pirates, right? They, they offended the establishment so greatly. They were no longer declared enemies of state. They were declared enemies of humanity. The world turned against them. And in response, they said, fuck you. And they declared war against the world. And in their new societies, the pirates, the Golden Age pirates had a form of diversity, unlike most organizations now. They were freeing slaves and giving slaves equal rights on their societies. 
they had fair pay, they had decision-making that hadn't been seen in the world, like democratic, sophisticated process. They had compensation. If you were injured on a pirate ship, you got payouts, like a pensionable scheme where you were taken care of. They reinvented the unfair rules of society and created new rules for this enormous fuck you, and they were not accountable to anyone because they were their rules other than to themselves. So this, this, this process of professional rule breaking is really a process of taking accountability and responsibility for the pathway that you're gonna follow. In a world where, forgive me, I think the, the, the only thing more stupid than some of the stupid rules we've got are the people who choose to follow them. Wow, I like this, challenging the norm, breaking the status quo. I, I, I feel like so many people are, they're, they're so into blaming, blaming things, situations, and others for where they are in life. And I like that you highlighted that we need to take responsibility. What's responsibility? It's your ability to respond. That's all it really is. You know, and it, that's, that, that's that moment where I, you know, I had a friend that was in a car crash. And then he had re, re, like basically practices responsibility all the time. And when he got into it, I, I called him straight away when I found out. And he said to me, he said, you know what? It was my fault. And I said, oh, no, but I heard the guy ran into it. But, and he said, Joel, I decided to leave the house at this time. I got in my car. I sat on my phone for 10 minutes to do something. He said, I put my phone away and I did the right thing there. But I drove down the road and I, I, the guy pulled out, but I was going at a, you know, five kilometers over and he hit into me. He said, if I didn't go through that sequence and that pattern, I wouldn't have put myself in that position either. Yeah. And I was like, wow, like much respect to you for even like, even when it's like it's busted and it's going to cost him money and all that, yeah. he took responsibility and it's because he's been in the practice of it and he practices it in every area of his life. Now, see, I think this is, this is part of the, we've got ourselves into some bad habits, right? And so this notion of betrayal or, or what am I feeling guilty for, you know, these are practices that we've lived with for a long time and, and, and it, it, then you get this projection of fear where it's going to take too much it's going to cost me too much to create change so on one hand i'm going to blame all of this and on the other hand i'm going to limit my ability to step out so your friend took a massive massive step and i think it's where this idea of the rebel can be so useful right now because stepping outside the rules leaves you naked right it's you now it's down to you what are you going to do and i think this is this is desperately important so my um my daughter's five and a half uh she got the book, she was pleased, she was excited. She, she, she took a look through it and she said, Danny, how did you write a book about pirates with no pictures in it? <laughs> Which is a very smart observation. Uh, <laughs> and I didn't have a good answer for it, but she liked the fact her name was at the front. And she asked me what it's about. I said, I, don't, I think that you're inheriting a world which isn't good enough. I'm not, I'm not proud currently of the state where, that we're handing this over to you. And I'm not sure that with the tools and techniques that we've got, it's going to get sufficiently better. I don't think there's enough people like your friend taking responsibility for these matters. You know, it is my responsibility, the world that gets handed over to her. I'm not, I'm not president, I'm not judge of the UN, but it doesn't matter. You know, just like your friend said, my role in this is I, I, as much as anybody else's. Uh, and I think that we're not going to create the change that we require in the time frame that's needed following the rules, right? We've inherited a system. Perhaps it was good uh, for its purpose 60, 70 years ago, but we know, you know, you and I explore entrepreneurialism and, and, and business. The, the working model, the, the engine of capitalism, which did so much and lifted so many people out of poverty and produced so much, we have to question where we are. We have to question the output of that. 
We have to question the environmental crisis. We have to question relationship with democracy. Can things be better? Of course they can. Uh, and this is the world I want to hand over to her. We're not going to get it to the shape it needs to be in by just following orders. And I got a call at the end of that week from the principal of her school to find out what, the, what had happened to Scarlett. She'd been throwing books off at the thing. She'd been taking the jackets down in the school. And you wow, she's such a good girl. I asked her, what's up? And she said, I'm breaking the rules, Daddy. And you <laughs> realize it's, it's, it's not enough. So I took her that weekend to Parliament Square in London, where uh, they'd recently unveiled a statue of Millicent Fawcett, one of the leaders of the suffragette movement. A hundred years, there's never been a statue of a female in Parliament Square. And I told her the story of Millicent Fawcett. This woman broke the rules. She did the wrong thing when it was the right thing to do. She risked her life, her family, her reputation, everything she held there, and she did it for you. She never met you. This is what I mean by rule breaking down. When it's the right thing to do, to do the wrong thing to do, when everything runs against you. Yeah. And this, you know, this story resonated. And she asked about the other statues, and then this was the moment for me when this notion of professional rule breaking really hit me. Because every single goddamn statue in Parliament Square from Winston Churchill to Nelson Mandela is there because they broke the rules. None of them got a statue made for them for following orders. We don't make statues for people who follow orders. But like artists and painters, rarely do we appreciate the rule breakers for their art in the time that they're living. You know, so your friend's story is perfectly right. You know, in the moment, the decisions that you make are going to affect what comes next. When it's the right thing to disobey, to do things differently. This is very difficult for us, I think. We're all hardwired to continue to follow. Yet we know from history, sometimes it's absolutely the right thing to do what's wrong. I love this. I love this. You know, I was having a conversation with somebody uh, a good year ago when I was in, actually, no, it was like nine months ago when I was in Italy, I was in Sardinia. And there was an art piece. And I asked this person that was right into art, like, how do we value art? Like what makes a piece of art worth 1 million and what makes another one worth $2? And he said something really profound to me. He said, my personal view and what I know a lot of other artists appreciate is you can determine a lot of the value of a piece of art based off its rebellious expression, right. which means it's like you could tell through the, the canvas Yep. how rebellious that person was on the other side of that paintbrush in expressing truly who they are. And, and it's crazy. It just, it gave me this new appreciation for art. I still didn't quite understand how to value it, but I, but I looked at it in a different way. I was like, wow, I can actually like look at some pieces that look like splatter and actually look closely at it and, and realize like, wow, there is some re like rebellion in it. I really like that. I've not heard that, but it, it sticks to, it speaks to me. Uh, it's kind of the same in business as well, isn't it? Like we, we, we by default respect the disruptors. Like, you know, I, you, I can tell you, you could tell me you just met like the top 10 disruptive new startups uh, in Australia. And I, I'd immediately be, I wouldn't know what they were in, what industry or sector, but I'd immediately be there. Same way, the natural rebellious spirit of art or, or, or even the books that are changing the way people are thinking. It's on that spectrum, right? We can see that's where the energy comes from. And so I'm saying that just to one side in the dark, in the shadows, slightly outside the bright lights of that which we know and understand is where disruption comes from, in the informal space off the edge of the map where pirates gather is equally valid. So, you know, you call it, call it uh, breaking a habit, I'm calling it rule breaking because I'm just pushing it a nudge or two further. And I think the lessons are the same.
you know, this, this notion of a rebellious spirit or of disruption, but because the change outside these windows has sped up, I haven't been inside an organization or met an individual whose transformation program is at the same level of acceleration as the disruption which is taking place outside. So there's got to be some new rules to move at the same speed. And I don't believe that permission-based change, which is what most of us are familiar with, where you, know, you might ask your boss or, or whoever, uh, I've got a great idea, put that in some slides so we can kill it in an email thread. You know, we haven't developed the tools to move at the kind of pace that's required. But stepping outside them, putting a new idea on a, on a canvas is a rebellious act and a scary one. So perhaps that's it. Same way for my daughter in that moment, or even your friend, to, to know that you're breaking the rules enough means that you will feel uncomfortable. And that's the compromise. That is the compromise. Your willingness to accept some discomfort perhaps suggests that you're pushing things far enough. We're going into the philosophical. I like this. <laughs> this is this is good. And you know what I think you know when we look at it, it looks like people respect courage. Ultimately, if we simplify it. And to go another layer deep, when you talked about disruptors too, let's look at some disruptors. We've got Airbnb, we have uh, Uber, right? Um, we have Netflix. I think if we dig even deeper into it, like, yes, they save people more time, uh, money and energy, but at the core of all of them, I think the reason why people left the old school and moved to the new is the fact that they actually care. Like their customer service is really what they understand is at the core of it all. And, and it goes back to even like, you said like these like activists get in that are courageous to go first. Deep down, it's coming from compassion. It's like people know what the come from is. If they see someone like Rosa Parks get up and say, like, no, I will sit, at, I will sit you know, yeah. in the front of the bus. This is, this is courage in a woman, but it means more than that. It's the fact that she's like, I'm willing to do this for my people, you know, and yeah. forever, whoever else is, is like not treated equally. And, and I just love this, man, that there's like, there's more to it than the ICs when you really break it down on why people rebel against the rules. Yeah, and I would push those guys further. I, I um. I personally have got a growing frustration about uh, Uber has almost become this byword for innovation, you know, the Uberization of, you know, it's almost like <laughs> yeah. pitch for anything. I'm going to do the Uber of whatever. I'm going to do the Uber of sellotape. I'm going to do the Uber of mugs. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an oversold promise in that for me that, yes, there is the, uh, the narrative of care. Like we care and we give a shit. And this, this idea of a shared economy or, or, or a more collaborative economy. And Airbnb is in the same game. And I think they oversold that. I, I do. I think it's, there's a, there's, yes, there's transformation, there's digital, digital disruption, and there's a new model. But, you know, the new, new, the real new has got to be more advanced than that. Because at the same time, we still face many of the same challenges. A, a bit of a toxic workplace culture, if we believe everything we read, the exploitation of, of human beings. You know, we're still we still haven't managed to free ourselves from a lot of the trappings of business that caused us so many problems. The, the business model of the latter half of the 20th century is problematic. It's led us to some very great, you know, huge life, you know, species threatening crises. And I don't see the innovation of Uber addressing all of those. I see it as a, a, a degree of a digital advancement of a similarly exploitative model. Um, Airbnb, I will give some respect to because you know they, they have really stood up on the refugee issues and, and they've really uh, spoken out loudly in the, in the political climate of the states. But I think actually 
The next wave is where I really see a lot of interest. There's the, seeing as you've drawn those examples, behind the scenes, there's real, where I would say the real pirates are, is the platform cooperative movement. So uh, for every Airbnb, in fact, there's a, there's a platform called Fairbnb. And so it's really fairly divided um, revenues that go back to the homeowners. In every single major city, there's a, an alternative to Uber, which is a cooperatively owned, so it's owned by its drivers. So this next level of innovation, where it's not just technology used in different ways to create profit, it's technology looking at different ways to, yes, make good revenues, but shared ownership, uh, further democracy of how we organize our, not just businesses, but societies, how we're using all of this advancement, not just to push more wealth in one direction, but to spread it. You know, this is really what the breadth of innovation, what entrepreneurialism has always been. It's about shared ideas for a general advancement. It shouldn't all just point towards one particular Silicon Valley, not to, not to bash them, but you know, it, it, sometimes it needs widening the scope of conversation around innovation, both to its potential societal, political, and global impact. Yeah, beautiful insights. I, I love this conversation, Sam. This is, this is definitely getting us thinking in a different direction and, and really challenging, challenging the way that we're used to thinking. And instead of being told what to do, I like this. It's like out the box, it's encouraging creativity. And I, we definitely need more of these conversations uh, throughout society and even in this world too, which is great. So uh, if you're, well, you know- ask, the, you hear it from your community. So I definitely feel that in the entrepreneurs I've mentored over the last two decades, in the last four or five years, the, the narrative's shifting. You know, I, really, yeah. I, I don't hear, I just want to make this exit with my millions. You know, that, that narrative seems to be much less. There's much more of a conscientious, broader yeah, awareness. Cool. And it's not, it's not just, you know, it's not like a, a, a lack to life, Bill Gates, I'm going to give back. It's just a more balanced perspective of the world. And there's only so much you can take before you have to give, or, or perhaps you don't even, you know, that, that notion of giving back isn't going to uh, come so strongly now because there's, there's less of us want to take in the first place. And in there, I see a really interesting opportunity for some of the best, most innovative examples of when you're trying to address a social issue and look after your own self and grow. Absolutely. Yeah. I find a lot of uh, entrepreneurs that I coach that have businesses, we look often for once they've established, they get this itch where they want to achieve more than just the monetary uh, success. And we look into, okay, how can you bring purpose elements into your business to give back? And, and I say it over and over again. I tell people like all these people keep trying to achieve happiness all the time. I'm like, you want happiness? Go for holiness first which is it's, it's giving back, it's contributing, it's creating something of value and meaning. And obviously you have to build that for yourself first before you can then, you know, bake enough pies to give out to everybody else. Yeah. And bringing, like, I, I find that there's so much power when you have a vision, a vision that is very clear. If you can clearly convey your vision to the world, the right people start showing up, they come together to support. And that's how you recruit your pirates, right? You know what I mean? Like you bring them on board and and then, you, you know, you can conquer the world, right? And, and that's really the key. And we found it uh, over and over again with the brands that I, I launch and the businesses we build is that bringing the right people in uh, that can really sense like where the vision is going. And then that we're actually truly doing it from a place of like, we're, we're here to actually make a difference and move the needle in the, in the world in the right direction. Man, so many people want on board with that. Man, you just took it back to the exact, so this is where I got to. So uh, uh, there's various stages of research on pirates, and like, I'd be turning pages in the museum or turning pages in the British Library, and I couldn't believe what I was discovering, whether they were the millennials of the 18th century, or, or, or they had 
they had halacracy or facilitative leadership. They had all these kind of the agile network systems of pirates, right, was way ahead of its time, still ahead of the 21st century. Um, but then this moment hits me when I discover the pirate code. So it gets talked about in the Pirates of the Caribbean and other things like it's some kind of guidelines. It wasn't. It was law. And what it was was a set of um, values-based decision-making frameworks. And if, if, if we were setting out as a pirate crew, you and me, and we were assembling uh, the team behind us, these were such sophisticated organizations. So you're the captain, I'm the quartermaster. It turns out that actually we've got equal positions. So you're in charge of strategy, but I'm in charge of culture. I've got the voice of the crew, and I can, the crew can outvote you at any moment. You're truly held accountable to your team. And the team only come aboard if they sign up to the pirate code. Like, in blood, these are the values that we will live and die for. And it's not this shit that you go into in many corporates, you know, where the values are written on the wall, and we know what they always say, bold, trusted, open, honest. And, you know, we know that anybody who has the right honest in six-foot letters in your reception just shouldn't be trusted anyway. Um, <laughs> and, and this is like... 300 years ago exactly so there's no they, they couldn't copy and paste these things there's no wiki pirate you know they couldn't have these things written down because they would be hung for them so they were values that they knew that they held true that they didn't need to a post-it note you know this is what i live for this is who i am this is who i am and their crews were on average about 80 uh, pirates but when they needed to they came together and they were an army of thousands they took on the spanish armada the royal british navy the, the biggest empires in the world for 30 odd years no one could defeat the Golden Age Pirates. And they crewed up, they crewed down, back to the form they needed to be. And they knew that they were all moving in that same direction because they had these values that they would fight, live, and die for. Values-based decision-making. And it's the, the lessons in there are profound. And at the end of the book, really, what I'm, I'm searching for is a Pirate Code 2.0. And I know it's a tiny bit glib to stick a 2.0 at the end of it, it reminds me of 2005. But, you know, you get what I mean. And where are the ideas out there that you want to follow? You know, wherever you, what are you seeing? In an organization, like that is a way of organizing yourself. Fuck the business plan. I'm behind that. I'll fight for that. That's what I'm trying to like, look for now. The Pirate Code 2.0. What is going to get us out of this mess? You know, what are the real reasons I want to follow these leaders or these new organizations? Where is the Pirate Code? Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. I remember Tony Robbins mentioning on one of the episodes that we had, uh, with him, uh, he, he talks about a business map, having a business map, which isn't so intense with detail like a business plan. It's yeah. a map because so much is changing. And I like that because it kind of relates to like a pirate uh, treasure map. I've got an idea actually, Sam. Um, I like sharing ideas because you never know where it can go. But it'd be interesting to see if you could write a book on Vikings. <laughs> And, li and liken that to business and, and, and getting your, uh, your movement out there. <laughs> well, the, I've been to Denmark now with the book a couple of times. So they're really, uh, we've had some long conversations about pirates versus Vikings. You know, who, who were <laughs> the Vikings had a very good form of democracy and they were excellent explorers, but they didn't hold the innovation that the pirates had. The reason being, that, again, the reason why I think it's one for us and, and your community is because the Vikings weren't against the world. You know, they had a really strong base. They knew exactly where their homeland was. They went out, did some raiding, shared their culture, and brought it back home. The pirates were of themselves. They were, they were powerful because at best they numbered about two and a half thousand. Sometimes they outnumbered 45 to one. You know, they were escaping this brutal, bloody time, right, where public execution was public entertainment, where there was no level of democracy. And they, and they visioned something new in a different way of doing things. And so they took these ideas onto boats. 
The world turned against them. Like I said, you know, they declared enemies of humanity. And eventually they became so popular that people wanted to join them. They were kind of the unicorns of their time, right? Really they were, because it was the only place on earth you could earn a fortune, be treated equally, you know, it's like the equivalent of like Google's free lunch. You know, this was a, this was a unique place to go and work. The workers of the world wanted to be part of it. They became so popular. They took their ideas off ships and onto land. And not many people know this, like I said, it's written out of history. But for 10 years, there was a proto-democratic republic in the heart of the Caribbean. The pirates literally formed a republic where all people were regarded equal, regardless of, of color, gender, background. So it was that successful a society began to form. Now, the, 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 the lesson here is when we take on the bigger odds, when we, when we go David and Goliath, when we recognize that we have all the power that we need, no matter whom it is we're trying to step up to, actually that's when innovation comes. That's when you find your best self. That's when you really reveal that. Not when you're whinging, complaining, and bitching, and all the reasons you can't do it. When you're out there on your own, you're just, just your crew. And that's when the ideas and the innovation and everything comes. So no disrespect to the Vikings, right? There's some hardcore Vikings out there. But pirates push themselves to the very edge of the map. And then that's when they discover the real treasure. I love this. You've obviously done a lot of research and I love, it. I love that it's gone into your book. Yeah. So, I mean, this is just like, you know, just proof guys that what Sam is writing in this book and how in depth he's gone and how passionate he is, it's worth reading. So make sure you check out Be More Pirate. Okay. It's in bookstores all over the world now. So you can jump on Amazon, right, Sam, to order the book. It should be in many bookstores. Yep. Shop shops all over everywhere you'd expect to be able to buy it. And I, I advocate supporting your local independent bookshops. There's a fun, there's a button on my website, which I just thought I'd, I'd see how this goes, right? You buy it from me at bemorepirate.com and I've made like signed things and made it a bit interesting. And all I said was you buy it here from Amazon or if you like people who pay their taxes, buy it here from me. It's amazing. The entrepreneurial community, you're like, yeah, fuck yeah. You know, and so it, it, being conscious in all of our actions and decisions, how we support one another, so I'm inundated with requests to then inscribe the book for the other entrepreneur and the pirate in my life. So um, what I'm really about is people buying the book to share it. And I don't mind if you steal it. I've made sure it's in all the available books stealing sites. You know, it's definitely just go and Google it. You'll find it if you want it. But pass it on. Right? There's something in there to be passed on. So if there's someone that you know who you just know, you know, they're the one, the person who always talks about doing it but never does it. That's who this book is for. So yes, yeah, steal a copy yourself, but get a copy for someone else. Yes. And head over to Sam's website as well. There's a really cool video on how the book came together and how they're promoting it. I was really impressed by the way that you did this like guerrilla promotion uh, video clip. Yeah. What's the website there? Uh, BeMorePirate.com. And, and yeah, you'll see it up there. We, uh, uh, we came very clear early on that, you know, the first books don't get massive budgets behind them. Um, and I kind of I developed this watchword. Maybe it's my last thing to leave you guys with it. In a professional setting, what, what I started hearing was no. You know, publishing can be quite conservative. So you know, can I have some advertising budget? Can we do this? No, no, no. Every time I got a no, what I did was to pretend that I'd heard go. And this becomes quite a quick and easy hack. So can I put a fly poster on the front of your head office right in the middle of London in front of six lanes of traffic? No. I was like, oh, I'm sorry, okay, thanks, great, go. I'll do that then. So came back and installed it. Can I put this projection on the Houses of Parliament? No. And each and every time, right? It's quite exhausting. You can't do it for long periods of time, but just give it a try. It only works. I'm only talking about a professional setting. I'm just in a personal setting. Might not be quite as appropriate. Just try it out. Each time you get a no, why is that giving you a no? What, what is, what's your problem? What are you scared of? What are the reasons you're giving me? Actually, most of them are overcomable. 
And actually, if we said yes, or if we said why, or even maybe, what would happen? When you hear no, give it a try. Test out and go. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is amazing. I love it. Well, uh, before we wrap up, Sam, you obviously run a, a really big uh, branding and marketing agency. You have a, around 100 employees. And I know you've had massive success. Uh, you've worked with some of the biggest brands in the world and businesses in the world. Uh, when you jump in and you work with these companies, what do you feel like if you could give us an example, because there are a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening right now uh, that are building brands and businesses. What is like maybe some example of you working with a company and then creating a change within that branding or messaging with a company that created such a huge shift for them? What's an example? Because I think that'll be really useful for our listeners. So the organization is called Liberty. We've got offices here in London and in Johannesburg. We exist to make a difference, right? So we, we, we stand for young people and youth culture, uh, but we've designed ourselves as a marketing agency, which means we get to work with the aforementioned Netflix and PlayStation. In fact, I'll use the PlayStation example. And, and you know, it looks like any agency you've been in, exposed wooden floors and exposed bricks, and it's all quite cool, more Macs than the Mac store, all of that stuff. But what makes it really cool is that this place for a lot of the young people that we work with is their community center, it's their we workspace. And on a really successful day for us, even though we've got a big team, we're outnumbered by young people. Now they might be students, they might have been in trouble, uh, they might be setting up their own business, they get to use the space. What we do that, that few other agencies do is we remember the importance of a relationship with our audience. So it doesn't matter who the audience is, but all of us step away from them very quickly. We rely on focus groups or other people's data you know, we don't go and stand in a shop. We don't go and stand on the street and talk to our audience relentlessly. And that's what Liberty does so well. So we were approached by PlayStation two years ago. Uh, PlayStation were losing out on one of their most important global brand trackers, uh, which is a measure of fun. And they were losing out on that to Xbox. And if you're, if you're losing out on fun to Microsoft, right, you're, you're fucked. Uh, so, you know, they knew that one of the big challenges amongst their kind of teenage core gaming audience was was moving into dark social they're moving away from facebook traditional social media much more to whatsapp you can't buy to get in that space what's that about so they were stuck so because we are surrounded by our audience at liberty daily we see so many of them we started buying in a, a lot of guys in the evening we did a lot of gaming sessions playing uh playstations eating pizzas and it was in speaking to these guys in a natural and trusted environment they knew what we were doing where they were invited to help us find a solution that they started showing that, that actually in gameplay, you know this from PlayStation background, actually the most important thing is the connection you're having with your peers, especially with online gaming. I wanna, I wanna, sh I wanna show you how much I'm gonna beat you. I wanna tell you what that felt like. And it was in the language of gifts, right? A visual communication that conveys emotion. And I probably shouldn't say this to the whole world, but it, what then happened is a group of 15 and 16 year olds taught the marketing heads of PlayStation really what, what gifts are and what Giphy is as a channel. And the, the PlayStation team was so grateful for this honesty and insight from this teenage audience that they gave them access to otherwise absolutely impenetrable real-life uh, content from the game studios. So they, they got a chance to make amazing gifts from their favorite games that resonate with the feeling of a victory or of a loss. So I've, I've kicked your ass so badly. You know, only this gift can convey what it's like. But I've got real access from Uncharted or FIFA or whatever it's been. And they made a, a, you know, a, a kind of a teenage-inspired, gift-creating studio of what should be un, ungettable content. It's the most successful brand Giphy channel on earth. Um, it's got well over a billion shares. PlayStation smashed the Xbox out at Christmas. You know, the fun stakes are back. 
and it's a visual communication created and designed by your audience. And that's really the message. It's a long way of, of saying what, what marketeers will say again and again and again. Don't lose sight of your audience. All the new trends, technology, and, and everything at your disposal is incredible, yes, but don't let it become a barrier or even a filter. The more time you spend with your audience, the better your marketing will always be. Vivity has designed its space for its audience to inhabit it, so we, should, we never lose sight of that. Yes, amazing. Keep your ear to the streets and actually care. Yes, yeah. yeah. Actually, make it reciprocal. The only reason that Liberty works is because young people deem to come in here. They don't come in here because they want to help us be a better marketing agency. They come in here because we help them. It has to be reciprocal. Absolutely. Sam, where can we find you online? You have an Instagram account? Are you on Facebook? Where are you at? Yeah, man, I'm, I'm really easy. Instagram and Twitter or LinkedIn are probably best. Uh, there aren't very many Sam Conniff Yendes in the world. In fact, I don't think there are any. Um, but my handle is Sam Conniff, S-A-M-C-O-N-N-I-F-F. -F. Uh, come and say hello. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sam, man. Thanks a million for jumping on. Appreciate you sharing your wisdom with the audience today. This was an awesome episode. So I'm honored, honored to be asked. Thank you very, very much indeed for your time. Wonderful. Sam, I got one more question. We wrap up every interview with this last question. And the question is, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech with the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? 30 seconds is probably very appropriate as an analogy for how much time we've got left. There is no time. There's no time for worrying, procrastinating, whinging, or bitching. This is the moment. The fight of our generation is the fight of our lives. This is the, the World War II of our times. The world outside needs us, it needs you. This is not an individual effort. This is a team effort. It requires all of us and it requires action. A lot less Instagram and a lot more team. <laughs>